Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 116. This is your host, Peter Renton, co-founder of Lendit and founder of Lend Academy. Today's episode is sponsored by Wonder Capital. Invest in commercial scale solar energy projects across the US. Earn up to 8.5% annually while also diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution and combating climate change. You can begin investing with as little as $1,000 and best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't charge any investor fees. To learn more, create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash lendacademy. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. We have a fascinating guest on today's show. I'm delighted to welcome Scott Zoldi. He is the Chief Analytics Officer at FICO. Now, he's also got a PhD in theoretical physics, which at first glance might seem a little strange, but as we discuss in this episode, you see how it fits actually perfectly because you know, Scott has been you know, analyzing data in complex systems you know, his entire career. So in this episode, we talk a lot about artificial intelligence. This is something that FICO has been doing for many decades. Scott's been doing for many decades. And we really get into how FICO is using artificial intelligence today. We talk about the many patents that they've received. We talk about fraud and how their system of fraud has been so successful we talk about alternative data and the different kinds of data they're using. And we also talk about you know, Scott's view on where the FICO score is at today compared with 10 years ago. It really was a fascinating episode, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thank you very much, Peter. Okay, so I'd like to get these shows started with giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. I, I know you've, you've been at FICO for a while, but can you just give the listeners just a background about your about yourself, how your career has gone? Uh, sure. Uh, so I have uh, been with uh, FICO for uh, 18 years. I uh, currently are, I'm in the role of the Chief Analytics Officer. I uh, My training has been in theoretical physics. So prior to coming to FICO, I was studying chaotic systems, turbulence, doing work with the government labs. And I decided to pivot into analytics around financial fraud and, and, and credit risk when I became aware of the amount of data that uh, was available and some of the really interesting problems that we have from a machine learning and, and analytics perspective and came to FICO in 1999 and have been a scientist ever since, uh, going through the different ranks from a, a entry-level scientist to today being the chief analytics officer at FICO. Huh. So you've, you've really been looking at data, you know, in sort of un, like non-linear type data your whole career, it sounds like. That, that's exactly right. And, you know, when I was in, uh, in my PhD, right, I was looking for phase transitions between, let's say, fluid systems. And now, you know, one of the areas I spent a lot of time on was actually fraud detection. And you can imagine that being a, some sort of phase transition between normal and abnormal behavior. And so mm -hmm. the, I saw the parallels right away, but, but very often, you know, it, it sounds a little odd to have a physicist, a theoretical <laughs> physicist in, in this business. Well the, well, the way you explain it right there makes perfect sense to me. So um, that's, that's really interesting. So I know that um, I just want to talk a little bit about um, FICO, the company. I mean, ev everyone pretty much has heard of the FICO score. Not everyone knows exactly what you guys do. So can you just explain what FICO actually does? What's, what, what's your business model? What products and services you offer? 
Yeah, so FICO is a, a company that which is an analytics company. Uh, we've been around for more than 60 years now, and we our entire business is based on the development of models that allow uh, businesses to make more intelligent decisions. And those decisions can range from you know, making a decision around the probability of fraud to measuring uh, a credit risk uh, or, or a uh, default rate uh, and making a prediction there to things like optimization of systems, marketing, cybersecurity, what have you. It's, uh, it's a company that's uh, constantly growing. We spend a lot of time on development of new analytic methodologies and machine learning and other areas because we really want to kind of optimize and, and improve our analytics over time for the business problems that we work on for our clients. Okay. And then so how does FICO kind of interact with the, with the credit bureaus? Because, you know, obviously everyone knows the three big bureaus here, they each have their own score which you know, some people call the FICO score. Like, can you just explain the, the relationship that you have with the three bureaus? Uh, yeah, so for each of the three bureaus, the relationship consists of the fact that these bureaus are collecting the credit history associated with consumers and the, the, the payments that they make and any delinquencies that get recorded associated with those consumers. And they come to FICO for the development of these, the FICO score, right? And so this is a score which is used for making the, um, a decision around delinquency and, and, and credit risk. Uh, each of these bureaus have a credit score, FICO score, that is tuned based on the data assets they have. Sometimes they might have slightly different data based on uh, the reporting of the um, credit history to each of, the, each of the different bureaus. But they provide us data for the purposes of building our models and then customizing it based on their, uh, the data that they have in, at each of these bureaus. So you're, so you're actually selling them your, your credit model or your analytics model, I guess, uh, that they then, or are you, selling them the, are you selling them the output, like the score, or how do, what, what are you actually providing? Right. So we're providing the score. So um, it, it consumes the, it works on the data that they collect. And then we're providing the model which produces the score that they can then provide to their, their clientele. Right. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. So then you, you mentioned that you're a chief analytics officer of FICO. And it's not a, it's not a title that uh, you, you, you see all that often. Can you explain what your role entails? Yeah, so as Chief Analytics Officer, uh, I have responsibility for the kind of analytic roadmap approaches to our, our business and, and products. And so, you know, a lot of that entails um, having a large number of PhD data scientists reporting to me that are responsible for the development of the models that, that FICO produces. Other parts of it consists of a research plan and a, related to, you know, new algorithms that we're developing, filing patents around some of the uh, the inventions you create in the analytics space, uh, and then also focusing very much around, you know, anticipating what our clients may need in the future from an analytics capabilities perspective. So, you know, really trying to make sure that FICO is at the cutting edge of the, the analytics practice, so that we can continue the legacy that we've had uh, over the last 60 years of, you know, using empirical models uh, to make better decisions for our clients. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned patents there. I'm, I'm curious about that. What what can you give us some examples of some of the, the patents that you have been awarded? Yeah, so it's interesting. We, we have patents, 130, uh, more than 130 at this point that have been granted. 
you know, some of the ones more recently that have been granted are, are focused around unique ways of allowing models to self-learn in production. And so it's a, a class of models, for example, that are really important in areas like cybersecurity or, or fraud detection, where you where you may not be able to, let's say, in fraud detection, you can build a really great model because you usually know where the frauds are and, and, and who's not fraud. And you can build, let's say, a traditional machine learning model. But we, as we all well know, fraud is, is a very kind of rapidly changing problem. And so these models have to adjust over time. And so we have these technologies called adaptive analytics that ride on top of our machine learning models and then learn what's happening in the production environment. We also have another set of patents related to completely unsupervised models, some models that you wouldn't necessarily have tags, let's say good and bad or fraud or not fraud or, or cyber, cyber breach or not cyber breach. And the models have to learn based on the data that they're presented what normal looks like, what abnormal looks like uh, based on the data that it processes over time. So it can kind of serve up examples of, let's say, customer behavior or machine behavior that might be, um, might be risky so that someone can go and investigate that. And, you know, with more and more of the data out there being, you know, streaming at us at incredible rates, most of these technologies that we develop in, from a patent perspective focus on these real-time uh, analytic systems that can, you know, process transactions very, very rapidly, and then, but produce these analytic scores, even if they're self-learned in production. Okay, so that, that brings up an interesting point, because I, I went back and, and watched your, your panel. There was a panel at Lendit that you were on um, that uh, focused around AI, and you said this a couple of times in the panel, that it's, you've got to be able to justify to regulators why you are rejecting somebody on a loan application or why the score is what it is. So I'm just curious about because it's when you when you're talking about self-learning models that are that are sitting on top of your regular machine learning models, I mean, isn't that somewhat opaque and difficult to explain? It it really depends on the the architecture of, of the model that we develop. So in general, right, any machine learning model today is usually difficult to explain because they're black boxes. But when you have a model that's adjusting over time, so for example, if I, if I go to like one of these adaptive models for fraud, the, the model itself, the adaptive model, uh, essentially would be reflecting on the most recent fraud and not fraud that would be seen in production, right? So, you know, in terms of explaining that output, uh, we can develop the model in such a way that it might be much more like a scorecard model that's mm -hmm. learning continuously based on feedback, and those are interpretable models, right? And so... In, in general, yeah, it, it, it is tricky, right? But if you're maintaining the history on which you build that model, uh, even an adaptive self-learning model, and you choose an architecture which is, you know, explainable, then then you don't run into the same sort of issues from a, a explanation perspective. Right, right. So, so I'm just curious. This, this question came up to me when I was watching your your panel. That, you know, would it would it be better to have a would would the model be much better if you weren't if you didn't have to be able to explain it? Or is it really, you think it's, it really is just as good knowing that you've got to be able to explain the decision? It's a great question. So, you know, in terms of, and I'll answer it this way, right? It really depends how well you understand the problem. So, for example, the, you know, the FICO scores we have in, in the U.S., right? We've been building these for 25 years. We've probably explored almost every perturbation of the way that we could define features and variables for that problem. And so, 
you know, what we find in those areas is if you try to apply machine learning on top of this, you know, model that's been refined over two and a half decades, it doesn't find a lot more, right? And so, you know, the, 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 it's not warranted to take on the expense of, let's say, having a, a machine learning model that provides very little lift uh, and improvement uh, and then introduces complexity that you have to try to resolve with the regulators from a, a machine learning perspective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that would be one use case. You know, another use case could be, you know, a, a, a score that's being built in a different area of, of, the, of the globe where there might be different data sources, less domain experience, right? And, and that might be a situation where the machine learning models would be used to, to gain more insight, right? Because they mm-hmm. would be able to learn relationships between, you know, between um, features uh, and speed up that learning process. One would still have to defer to the local regulation whether or not you use machine learning to gain insight and build better models like learn features and segmentation and still use an interpretable model like a, a scorecard. But that's where the machine learning could have some benefit if you're exploring entirely different data sets or types of data or a set of, you know, a set of clientele that you haven't been working on for, for decades, but it's a, a brand new area and there might be different relationships to learn there. Right. Yeah, understood. So... Still on, on modeling here, I mean, it sounds like just from the way you described your background, I mean, you, that FICO has been doing you know, machine learning for decades, it sounds like. Because, I mean, I'm just – because, you know, obviously regression analysis, linear-type regression analysis has been, you know, standard for, for decades. And then we've moved – it seems fairly recently from my perspective, but obviously I, I'm not as close to it as you are – so have you been using this sort of you know, artificial intelligence sort of uh, mode of analysis for a long time? Or can you explain when you moved over to that or has that just always been your, the way you've done it? Well, so, so it's been something that's been at the heart of our company for a very long time. Our, our fraud solution, Falcon, right, that's the, uh, it's a neural network-based model that monitors about two-thirds of the world's payment cards for, for fraud. That was introduced in 1992, right? And that's when, you know, we, we brought these machine learning models, neural network-based models, along with behavioral analytic profiles to the banking industry to kind of help fight a, a ever-growing sort of fraud problem that was, uh, you know, really a, a tremendous challenge for the banks in the very early 90s. And so, you know, we're, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary of not only using AI and machine learning, but, but productizing it, right? And, and now, you know, today... You know, models like Falcon are almost, you know, considered part of the infrastructure with respect to, you know, a, a trusted sort of methodology for maintaining fraud risk and, you know, detecting fraud while minimizing false positives. But our history goes even before that. We, we were actually using machine learning models in the defense area in, in the 80s where we would go and, and do some of this work trying to detect, let's say, you know, what would be a, a tank in, in a landscape. And, and so those are very basic sort of image recognition problems that you use from a, uh, a machine learning perspective. Today, we have probably, well, we have more than 70 patents just in the machine learning AI area from that legacy. So it's always been part of our pedigree. And even in areas like, you know, the, the credit risk where, you know, scorecard technologies are very palatable and, and proven technologies that are uh, transparent and, and explainable to regulators, we, we still use those AI techniques to, you know, explore different features and segmentation. So we, we consider it part of our tool sets. In parts of our business, we deliver the machine learning model as an output. In other parts of our business, we use machine learning in the development of, of our models, so, but we, even if we deploy them in a different way. 
Right. Okay. So what are then? What do you think? Because you know, it seems like the last, I don't know, two years, maybe maybe three years. It's and even more so. I feel like even in the last six to nine months, that artificial intelligence is all the rage. It's everywhere. You hear about it. There's articles being written daily about, particularly um, in, in financial services. It's uh, it is seems like everyone now has. This advanced AI that they're that they're implementing. So, what do you sort of sit back and laugh when you when you sort of read some of these articles, or or what what are your thoughts on it? Well, so one is I'm, I'm excited that machine learning and AI is, is the the you know the rage again, and and so I think that's a really positive thing because it's a tremendously interesting set of technology. You know, some of the claims out there I think are, are sometimes a little bit laughable because, you know, I think a lot of these new companies that are popping up are not aware of some of the, you know, the legacies, like, you know, in the, in the fraud space that you know, banks have been using these neural network models, you know, for, for two and a half decades. But, you know, I, I generally sit there and I pause because, you know, what I, what I worry about is it takes a lot of care to properly productionalize and operationalize AI, right? So mm-hmm. from, you know, making sure that models aren't overtrained, right, to making sure that uh, you have the proper amount of degrees of freedom, that you've really thought about the data you bring into the machine learning model so it doesn't learn the relationships that, you know, might be, you know, might cause bias or, or, or might cause the model to, to not, you know, perform in, in predictable, reliable ways. And so, you know, that's what I actually spend time worrying about because, you know, at, at FICO, right, we, we have a lot of experience with this and we, we treat it with a lot of care and we have a lot of governance around these models in terms of how they're developed. We, we encourage our, our, our customers to apply governance once those models are, you know, installed. And, you know, my, my only concern right now is that, you know, with this hype cycle where AI and machine learning has to be part of everything that we, we interact with, that, that they be built properly, right? And, you know, Part of that, frankly, is with big data, right, that a lot of people look to machine learning as being kind of a, a savior for all these investments we've made collecting data over these years. And, you know, there'll be one of the worst things we can do is just blindly apply these technologies. And so whenever I'm out there and I, and I hear about different companies, you know, working this space, I, I just always encourage them to really take some time to think about the problem they're solving, the data they send into the, to the AI machine learning and, you know, have some governance around it. And I think you know, we'll, we'll see a lot of really great applications. I think, you know, without that, we'll see a few few models go sideways for different, you know, folks or different startups. But, you know, I think, I think that will just become, you know, more mature over time as, you know, some people uh, start to learn some lessons with respect to the AI that they're using. And, you know, we talk less about algorithms and more about kind of proper use and governance of the technologies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so let's talk about that data then for a second. There, there, there really is... You know, there's been an explosion in data in recent years, and you know, it, it like you do need obviously pretty complex systems to be able to make use of it all. And you know, I know there's that. Like, I'm curious to get your your take on it. I mean, so what data are you using? And and I guess the se- the second part of this question is what's considered alternative data. I'm, you can't see me, but I've got my fingers in quotes like little you know rabbit ears. So it's you know alternative data. That you know, social media, smartphone data, even alternative financial data like you know, rent, mobile phone payments, utility payments, all that sort of thing. So, what is? Uh, have you greatly expanded your your use of the, of the data you you bring in to your models? So we we're we're most definitely looking at you know increasing the types and ranges of data that are used, right? And in fact, you know we 
we had a, a FICO financial inclusion initiative focused on, you know, development of new scoring products and partnerships and services, you know, to, to really kind of make sure that we can bring in, let's say, more of the, the, the 3 billion customers that are underbanked globally, mm-hmm. right, or, or un, uh, unbanked, right? And so we, we felt this very important, right, because, you know, at the core of, let's say, if we stick to a, a FICO uh, credit score, right, and the core of that is, is, is bureau information, right? And even though the FICO score is in over 25 countries right now, you know, the, the the, the quality of bureau data and, and, and the availability of data in different parts of the world are, are, are really different. And so part of this is to, to explore what's available from a data perspective, let's say, to, to improve the score over time. And, you know, as an example, right, uh, we, we had an initiative which was, you know, kicked off in 2014 where we're around financial inclusion. And that's where we have this FICO XD score, right, where we said for, you know, for those that are unbanked or underbanked in the U.S., right, we would go leverage things like rental information, whether one's paying phone bills, um, because those are pretty good proxies for, let's say, paying off a, a line of credit also. And we found that that has allowed us to extend the extend FICO scores, these XD scores, that allow people to kind of enter that, that, that kind of credit cycle and, and build up a credit history. Now, with that said, that's a, you know, a, a special use case. If we look at with the core business, right, we, we also have to look at what regulations say about data, right? And so, for example, today, right, we're, we're not necessarily using mobile device information or social media primarily because of regulatory concerns, right, around the, the, the proper use of this data with respect to uh, traditional, you know, traditional credit uh, data application, right? Particularly if you put it into a model and you're not entirely sure how, let's say, my last tweet has an impact, let's say, on, you know, on how the, my, my my, my credit score will go up or down, right? And so we explore it. We explore it all the time, but it always has to be with a view to what are the regulations that we're able to use here? And, you know, would the model, would we be in, in line with regulation in terms of the type of data? And would we ensure that we're not building models that, you know, learn relationships that really are not going to be helpful, right, in terms of impacting consumers in a, in a unintended uh, and maybe mi- misunderstood way? Right, right. So, is it is disparate impact the main concern here? Where you think you're going to you're going to you're going to sort of use data that is just by the very nature of the data itself is going to discriminate against a certain group, or is there something more? So, so that's one of the really big concerns, right? Um, because as you know, particularly if we look at big data or lots of different data sources, you know, the the, the correlations get learned, right? Could could potentially be discriminatory, right? Or could be very correlated with, let's say, some sort of protected class. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but just in addition to that, right? Uh, you know, the, the data that gets collected, you know, will change over time. May not be studied at the same level of, of rigor. And you know, the, the models might just learn things that are really um, not not real relationships, right? So, like, you know, as an example, like if we thought about a fraud example, if we move away from from creditors for a moment. You know, if I collected data, there's tons of uh, a lot of fraud reported in, in New York, and I built this model, right? The model might assume that any time a transaction occurs in New York, that it's fraud, right? And that's <laughs> not a real relation. That's a correlation of data, right? But it has nothing. It's not causal, right? right. It, you right. know, and one has to really focus on those. And we want to avoid those sort of things being learned as we combine lots of disparate data. So. You know, as we look at data, you know, we, we have to constantly ask those questions of ourselves and, you know, and ultimately look at some of the relationships that are being learned so that we have a level of confidence that they're, they're legitimate relationships and ones that we would, could defend and be comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to the, the, the FICO XD uh, scoring that you, the model that you mentioned. So 
is the output of that more, or is that is that an actual? They they you score these people in. Uh, you know, that you don't have the traditional bureau data. You, you've got, you, know, you talked about rent payments and, and mobile phone payments and stuff like that. But is that, I'm just trying to figure out how that is different to your, you know, the traditional ones that you'd get at TransUnion, Experian, Equifax. Well, the, the, the main thing is that's different is, you know, our traditional score, right, is, is leveraging the credit bureau, right, and, and the data within the credit bureau, right? But if we have a, a someone that's, kind of new to this country or a young person or someone that just hasn't entered into the banking environment, there, there, there really would be a very shallow or no credit bureau information whatsoever. So they would be unscorable by the, the traditional FICO score. And that's where, you know, we, we have a relationship with, you know, LexisNexis and, and uh, with Xbox around collecting this other alternate data, right, which now enables us to build that score based on the, 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 the kind of rental and, and telco data we build it in such a way that it actually has a strong correlation with with, with with the FICO score. And that just that's the entry point where now someone, instead of, you know, having to um, make a decision without a score, can now leverage a score, which would be interpreted on the same scale as traditional FICO score, and, and they enter. And they enter into the, the kind of the credit life cycle. And over time, they start to develop their own credit bureau history, uh, and they would pivot off of a uh, FICO XD score to the traditional one because now they started to have a, a credit bureau and they have a, a, a history of, of paying bills and, and there's a, a history being learned on that and they would pivot back to a traditional score at that time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I do want to also want to just follow up on the fraud piece. So I think it's it's really important and I want to just get a sense, like you said, that the, the Falcon product has become sort of ubiquitous in, in the banking industry. How has it become so successful? What are the things that what are the inputs that really that you take that are that are so predictive when it comes to fraud? Yeah. So um, you know what what made it very very successful in in the in the early '90s was you know back in those days the the banks were primarily you know writing rules right and and and, and kind of large sets of rules to detect fraud and, and fraudsters were able to kind of you know, very rapidly sort of learn the rule thresholds for when, let's say, a case would be generated or not generated. And so, you know, the fraud was spiraling out of control. The other aspect of this was as the banks were trying to go figure out all the different ways to stop this fraud, they would write more and more rules. And so in doing that, right, what you end up doing is maybe not detecting much more fraud, but with each and every rule that you write, you add more false positives, right? right? And so they they get into the situation where, you know, they, they wanted to detect more and more fraud, and but false positives were a huge issue, right? And, and so that's where we became very successful because we applied a model which was kind of finding the, the kind of best relationships between lots of different input data that would occur, let's say, on the, on the off stream and also, you know, features that were derived based on a transaction history. And it did two things. You know, first thing is it, it enabled it was a lot harder for, for fraudsters to try to figure out when a case gets generated because it's, it's a much more complex decision based on these relationships that the model's learning um, based on historical data of, of fraud and not fraud versus something that's a little bit more simplistic in terms of rules. The other aspect beyond fraudsters trying to, to guess or work their way around it was that, that the banks were finding you know, very, very high levels of detection and, and much, much lower levels of false positives. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we were very fortunate because we, you know, we installed this first at, at the 
at First Data, and we had a ability to then allow many, many different banks to leverage this model. And you know, as they all saw the benefit of this, they decided that you know one of the best ways to have the most predictive model from a machine learning perspective, and we we helped them with this is for banks to sh- you know allow the data to be aggregated by FICO for the purposes of building a model that sees as many examples of of fraud and not fraud so that you know this model would be better than any model they could build on their own because they, they see a much broader view of, of a set of, of, of good and bad data over time. Right. And you know that was really a big part of why it was successful over time. You know, you, you, know, you turn the clock ahead 25 years, it's still very, very successful. Although many of the banks talk less about detection of fraud, they talk more about improving the, the customer experience, right? And so, you know, it's more about when you do have a, a, a false positive, make sure it's a false positive that, you know, makes sense, right? That it's a new behavior versus, let's say, just a risky behavior. And so, you know, the, the, the technologies continue to advance over time because, you know, we want to continue to keep fraud at an acceptable level and then, you know, make sure that we're impacting as few people as possible and really learning their individual behaviors very, very deeply. Right. Right, makes sense. So we're almost out of time, but there's a couple of more questions I really want to get your perspective on. And there's, there was there was an article, I think it was a couple of months ago now, that you know talked about how the financial crisis now we've gone more than seven years, and the bankruptcies are rolling off, and the, the bad behaviour that happened during the financial crisis are no longer part of people's credit reports, and so they're saying that FICO scores are now higher than they've ever been before as far. I think I read something that there's fewer people below, uh, there's more people above 600 than ever before. And so question I, I, I like I pose, I mean, because you've got this sort of, you know, this d- definitive uh, number, you know, is a 700 FICO score today the same risk as it was 10 years ago? So the, the 700 score today is not the same as, as it was 10 years ago. You know, in, in, if we look at where we were 10 years ago, right, we were on the cusp of the subprime uh, mortgage meltdown and then the, the recession. And so, you know, the, the, there are more 700 scores. They're, they're let's say, a, a reflection of, you know, an improving economy over the past seven years. And, you know, that means that People have been able to pay their bills, uh, right? They've been able to manage their debts in a, in a much more effective way. And, you know, many of them have seen kind of rising equity from, from home prices. And so that's all kind of made for much better, you know, uh, kind of behaviors from a, from a credit risk perspective over time. Now, even though that the risk would be different between a 700 today and, and a 700 10 years ago, let's say, it, it's still, it is still, a, you know, an effective ranking of, of, of risk. Right. It's just that there are these going to be these factors from time to time that are kind of external, right? Much more kind of global uh, that can cause a shift in terms of the relationship between the FICO score and let's say a probability of default. Uh, so that does occur, um, but that's generally what's driving the the fact that we see more 700 scores today is just people's lives are in a, in a much more kind of financially healthier state when it comes to you know paying their bills and managing their credit. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. So then, so last question. I mean, what what, what are the, some of the things that you're working on you know, personally today that is is exciting for you and and things that might be coming down down the road for FICO? Yeah. So one of the areas that that I'm really excited about is uh, explainable AI. So this is explainable artificial intelligence. So you know when we look at you know, all this excitement around AI and machine learning, we, we always kind of go back to the fact that many of these algorithms are not explainable or transparent, right? 
And, you know, FICO is actually, we just had a patent that expired that was written uh, in, in 1997 around explainable AI. So some of what I'm really excited about is to continue to push the frontier of, of explainable AI for, for a couple of reasons. One is because, you know, that would allow more confidence in the use of machine learning in areas that are more, more heavily regulated, such as credit risk. But also if we look at, you know, at the EU, right, we have this general data protection regulation that also states that if you're making a decision on a consumer that you need to be able to explain, you know, the, the reasons for those decisions, right? And so this is a big research area for FICO. It, it always has since we introduced Falcon. And it, it continues to be one that I think if, if we crack that nut and, and really come up with very good explainable artificial intelligence, right, then, you know, we're going to see a lot more kind of responsible use of this technology over time. And so that's one of, one of the topics that I'm really excited about um, to, to kind of clear the way for, you know, meeting regulation, not just credit risk regulation, but regulation across the globe related to the use of models for decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's, that's really that's fascinating. Well, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. I, I really appreciate, appreciate you coming on the show today, Scott. Yeah, it's, been, it's been a real pleasure, Peter. Thank you so much. Okay. See you. You know, sometimes I think FICO gets a bit of a bad rap in the fintech industry. You hear companies talking about, oh, we don't really use FICO anymore. You know, we, we, we're beyond FICO. And I think we can all appreciate after listening to this interview that FICO uh, certainly have been on the cutting edge when it comes to artificial intelligence anyway for a long time. They were doing artificial intelligence before, you know, many of these uh, new CEOs in fintech were even born. So I think that it's good to remember. But I also think I'm excited about the explosion in artificial intelligence and how we can really create a better mousetrap. We can create better models. We can create better predictive models for all kinds of consumers, not just prime or mid-prime or subprime, but all across the spectrum. And we can do it internationally. And I feel like this is an exciting time. There's there's going to be a lot of advances coming down, I see, in the next uh, couple of years. And it's going to be the fintech companies that are really doing this responsibly and in an intelligent way that are going to be the winners. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I will catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Wonder Capital. Invest in commercial scale solar energy projects across the US and earn up to 8.5% annually. Brian Bursick, the CEO of Wonder Capital, was a guest uh, on our recent podcast episode number 104. And just worth noting, they've financed 40 large-scale projects to date with no write-offs whatsoever so far. To learn more and to create a free account, go to wondercapital.com slash lendacademy.